support for Latino Book Review presents comes from listeners like you. To support us, visit our website, latinobookreview.com, and sign up to become a patron. Osvaldo Estrada is a writer and a full professor of Spanish and Latin American studies in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has won multiple awards, and most recently, he edited a book titled Incurables, Incurables, which is a collection of 20 short stories. He has also written several other academic and creative books, and it is an honor to have Professor Estrada here with us today. Osvaldo, welcome to Latino Book Review Presents. It's really an honor to be here with you, and I'm super excited to have a conversation with you. You're a professor and you're a writer. Which one of those came first? That's always difficult to separate. I think I've always been a writer. Since I was little, I wanted to write and I started creating my first short stories or what I thought were short stories at the time when I was 10 or 11. But then, you know, life changes and I moved, of course, from Peru to the United States when I was 14. And that changed things because I had to learn a new language. I had to put my creative writing aside for a little while and I had to learn English. Then I went to college. And as an immigrant, you have to work really hard, right? Twice as hard, I think, in order to achieve a, a certain goal. And in a way, I had to develop my career as a professor first. Although I continued writing in private or publishing every now and then. So I published a, a few things when I was in college, when I was in grad school. Uh, short stories, that is, and poems. I also published some poems when I was younger. And of course, I, I published articles and academic books and so on. And then at some point, I decided that I couldn't live without my creative writing. And that's when I started publishing more and more and becoming more serious as a creative writer. Thank you so much, Osvaldo. And you mentioned that you see yourself as an immigrant of the United States, but you were born in California, right? Right. So I was born in California of immigrant parents from Peru. But I was only born here. When I was four months old, my parents went back to Peru and, you know, they took me with them. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I grew up in Lima. And of course, Spanish is my first language. And it's the only language that I spoke for 14 years. I, I didn't speak a word of English when I came to the U.S. when I was 14. So even though in papers, I am an American citizen, I was born in the United States in Santa Ana, California. I did have the immigrant experience. And in many ways, I'm still still an immigrant. I consider myself a first-generation immigrant, along with my parents. And that changes things. It changes the way that you see the world, the way that you position yourself in your own writing as an academic, but also as a creative writer. It's a very interesting thing because I think for most people, when they think of a first-generation immigrant, they would think of one single person. But in your circumstances, it was your entire family. All of you were first-generation immigrants. Right. It is a little bit different, right? Because you're usually thinking, you know, so the parents came to the U.S. to work and then they had children here and so on, or, or the children came and they were very little. So in many ways, they're disconnected from that immigrant experience. I guess if you want to be, you know, 100% correct, I would be sort of a one and a half for Gustavo Perez Firmat. The Cuban academic and writer writes about this. A one and a half for would be a person who's had plenty of experiences in his native country. And Peru is my native country, even though I was born in the U.S., but at the same time has the ability to adapt to this new environment. I've always, you know, had one foot here and one foot over there. I, I feel in many ways that I do belong to the U.S. I can't imagine my life anywhere else. This is where I am. This is where my family lives. This is where I've lived for, you know, most of my life. 
And yet there's so many times and in so many ways, I still do feel like an immigrant, like an outsider. When I read a book and I notice something that somebody else hasn't noticed, or, you know, when I go somewhere and somebody, you know, drops a little comment about immigrants, thinking that I am not one of them, but I'm still an immigrant and it still hurts. Some people say not from here nor from there. Right. How does this situation affect your creative work? I think for the longest time as an immigrant, of course, I've been interested in issues related to immigration and otherness, coloniality at large, you know, the experience of the immigrant and, and also how gender plays an important role. So I've studied this for a number of years in various academic publications, you might say. But I also noticed at some point that a good number of my main characters are immigrants, not necessarily from Latin America. Uh, they might be immigrants from elsewhere, but they're always, you know, with one foot here and one there. They always have sort of a hybrid identity. They belong, but there's so many times when they don't. And I think it has to do a lot with my own experiences, but also not just my own experiences, but the experiences of others that I've met along the way. So when I first came from Peru, I lived in California and I met people from Central America, from Mexico, and also from other parts of the world. And this really changes the way you see things. When I look at myself and I see things thinking that perhaps my writing will somehow illuminate certain aspects uh, that are usually hidden here uh, in American culture when it comes to otherness, invisibility, uh, being the other, not belonging, and so on. Let's move a little bit to your book, Incurables, Incurables, which won the International Latino Book Award. You are the editor of this book and the author of one of the short stories included in this edition. Why did you decide to work on this difficult topic of things that affect people at a very deep level? It's interesting. I had been directing a dissertation that had to do with disability and disability studies. I served on two different graduate committees on disability studies as well. And all of a sudden, I realized that my students at UNC, but also students from other universities, had to go to Latin America in order to look for stuff on disability studies, short stories that dealt with disability, with illness as a metaphor. And I knew that there was something here in the U.S., simply because, you know, we have so many writers already living in the U.S. from Latin America, writing in Spanish, that I knew I could gather a nice group of writers representative of various parts of Latin America and try to come up with a unifying theme. Why illness? Well, I think that many of us, in some ways, we live our otherness as sort of as an illness or as a chronic illness, I should say, one that you must live with. And, and it's sort of who you are and makes you a real person. And I thought, you know, why don't I gather writers and have them create something interesting about this? Of course, the title of the book came later, Incurables. I mean, of course, when I created the call for creative works, I didn't even imagine that we would be living in the middle of a pandemic. Yes. And yet so many people are now interested in the book, deeply identify with some of the short stories that deal with illness, with not being, quote unquote, normal. 
that's what I wanted to ask you, because in many ways, it's not only about physical illness, but in many ways, there are metaphors in the book for things that are not seen as normal by society in general. And therefore, that person could be considered an incurable person because society tends to look at some of these attitudes or behaviors as something that could be seen as an illness when in fact it's not, right? Several of the characters here live certainly a hybrid identity or have a hybrid life here in the United States. Throughout the collection, there are some that talk about what it's like to have 13 parents instead of just one or two or three. Or some of them talk about what it's like to be a lonely child or a different kind of child. So the collection certainly gathers various perspectives, but it also shows you the state of Latin American literature produced here in the United States in the 21st century. I don't want to call it a conflict, but there is some kind of different perception of the work that is being produced by Latin Americans in the United States and by what some people identify as the Latinx community. Would you say that these are the same or uh, how, how should we approach these these days? It's a difficult question and I'm a professor of literature. I should be able to answer this question quickly in two seconds, but it's really complicated because most people here in the United States, most academics see and define Latinx literature as literature written in English. In fact, many departments of English house Latinx programs in the United States. So Latino literature, Latinx literature in the U.S. is seen almost exclusively as literature written in English by Latinos here in the United States. Now, what do you do with people like me or with people like Santiago Vaquera, Mariana Graciano, Rey Andújar, Ulises González, people who write in Spanish mainly and who are living here, are living the American experience, and yet they continue to produce the writing in Spanish. And Cristina Rivera Garza wrote about this a few years ago. She called this particular literature, without calling it a movement, new, new Latino literature. Latino literature produced in the United States in Spanish, not in English. Uh, most recently, Naida Saavedra, who also participates in this book, has published a book on the new Latino boom, hashtag new Latino boom. And she sort of traces this literary phenomenon that you see now here in the United States with people writing in Spanish. And it's a phenomenon in the sense that it's not just people writing on their own and publishing here and there, but there are literary journals publishing literature in Spanish all over the United States. Something certainly going on, and we must accept that this is not just Latin American literature written in the United States. It's something else, something hybrid, something sort of in the middle, because inevitably we have been changed by living here, even if English isn't our first language. Do you think it could be related to the reappropriation of the public space, meaning the public narratives that are available for the different audiences, that Spanish language writers, they are claiming that spot and instead of writing in English as the mainstream society is asking them to write and these writers are fighting against this imposition of this idea that for somebody to be embedded in the general market they need to write in English. Do you think it could be related to that? 
It's certainly a political act as well, right? I mean, the fact that you're writing in Spanish here in the United States when Spanish is not the official language. Yes, there are, what, uh, 58 million Hispanics, as they like to call us here in the U.S., living here. But how many of those 58 million, A, read in Spanish? And how many of those speak Spanish? And how many of those are actually consuming books, literature. So yes, writing in Spanish is definitely a political act. It's, you know, sort of going against the grain on the one hand, but also it's a lonely um, battle. There is a thing that connects many works being produced by Latin Americans in the U.S. and by some of the Latinx writers as well. Most of those narratives talk about courage in the end and how you overcome these difficulties and how you cope with very difficult situations. Do you think that is part of our nature or our history as Latin Americans or Latinx people that we are connected to a life that requires us to have courage to get ahead in life? Yes, certainly. I think that we have an amazing capacity to sort of reinvent ourselves from scratch. You know, when we undergo a difficult situation, for instance, when we have an illness, when we have an accident, when we have a catastrophe in front of us, we sort of invent ourselves again. And there's sort of the expected belief that you must endure this and you must have the courage to go on and to survive and there will be a prize at the end of this. What I see in many ways with this book, Incurables, is that we don't have to change. We don't have to adapt. We may adopt if we want to, but we don't have to. And we are different. So what? We're missing a leg. We're missing an arm. Uh, we're missing our motherland. But here we are. And we are different. We speak English with an accent. We don't always belong. And I think that's a statement that comes across over and over and over. So there's a sense of empowerment in the collection. How to sort of empower yourself with your own otherness. And I don't know if that's something that we're necessarily getting from mainstream here. But it's certainly something that we see here in the book. Yes, I agree with you. Also, you have produced a lot of research, academic research, and also some creative work in relation to gender and, you know, the differences of how society treats women and men and the implications of all this. So have you heard any comments from different readers that have told you that they have appreciated this aspect of your writing? Thank you for mentioning that, because I've spent many years working on gender studies and writing about women writers in Latin America. I have received encouragement from my colleagues and also generosity from many authors and critics. I think that the world will be a much better place when we all start or try to see the world from the other perspective, from the other end of the spectrum. It's always amazing to see, or embarrassing, I should say, how many people simply avoid mentioning women writers. And you see it over and over. Who are your models? People will, you know, inevitably mention Borges and Cortázar. The usual. Yeah, the usual suspects. <laughs> and they were great and they were amazing, of course. But why not mention Amparo Dávila, for instance? Why not mention Inés Arredondo? Why is it that we always have to stick to the classics? And if we were to study Latin American literature, just following literary movements, we would never study women, of course, because women never made it to those literary literary movements. They're never incorporated, or hardly ever, I should say. And I've enjoyed working with a great number of feminists here in the United States, but also in Mexico and Peru and other places. In relation to this, you have a, another book that is in English that is titled 
Troubled Memories, Iconic Mexican Women and the Traps of Representation. Is this a part of this effort that you're making for people to recognize Mexican and Latin American and in general Latinx women writers? I worked on this book for a long time. It usually takes me a long time to finally come up with an idea. And I started working on this book when I was reading a number of contemporary rewritings of Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in Mexican literature. And I noticed that there were a lot of misrepresentations in terms of what do you do with a public figure, with a public intellectual such as Sor Juana? How do you invent knowing that there's so much historical information on this particular character? And then I noticed that the same could be applied to La Malinche or to Leona Vicario or to the Soldaderas of the Mexican Revolution. So I started working on this book and what it takes to represent a historical figure, an iconic woman. So this is what I was working with. And when I was trying to put the book together, I was trying to focus on various historical moments of Mexican history. So I was looking at the conquest, colonization, but also at the Mexican Revolution. And the book ends with Frida Kahlo, in the sense that Frida Kahlo is, of course, the Mexican icon of the 20th century, the tormented painter who represents that marginal dot that we need in order to let us know that we are not that. So it's interesting the place that she occupies today in the 21st century. There is a large misrepresentation of Latinx communities and Latin Americans in media in general. Do you think this is connected to that misrepresentation of how people and society in general are consuming and interpreting these characters through films or TV shows. Do you see any connection with that? For sure. And you can see how we are represented here in the United States. How are Latinas usually represented in the United States, regardless of where they're from? So they may be from Spain or from Latin America. They all have sort of a universal Latino, in parentheses, other accent. It's interesting that in order for a Latina to succeed, You need to show that you have this different presence, but this presence is full of stereotypes that don't necessarily contribute to highlighting who you truly are. And I wanted to ask you about who made you as a writer. Are you in conversation with any dead writers or any living <laughs> writers <laughs> that made you as a writer? On the one hand, of course, I decided to study Latin American literature because I fell in love with these magnificent writers, but also because I started taking literature courses when I was an undergraduate at the University of California. And reading made me realize that I also wanted to be like them or that I had something that they were exploring and that I couldn't necessarily express at the time. So I'm thinking, for instance, of what happened to me when I read Gloria Saldúa or Ralph Ellison, or Amy Tan, Richard Rodriguez, Maya Angelou. Those were, I think, my teachers, my mentors in many ways, because I could read Richard Rodriguez. And even though I've never worked in the fields of California, there was this huge part of me that could identify with what he was going through. That sense of being the marginal, the extra, the, the one who's not supposed to be here, the one who doesn't belong. I could feel that in some way. Or when reading someone like Maya Angelou and what she lived in the South, or when she moved when she was little to California, what she had to go through as an African-American woman. And then, of course, I can mention that thanks to reading the books of Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Cortázar, Mario Vargas Llosa, and so on, I learned how to appreciate literature 
and also others, Juan José Arriola, Elena Poniatowska, Inés Arredondo. I realized that a huge part of my identity was inevitably and permanently stuck in Spanish, for better or worse. And that's, you know, when I decided that I had to create in Spanish. I can write in English, but I don't think... I'm necessarily 100% me, if you know what I mean. Then again, I don't know exactly what 100% of me is, but, <laughs> but, but I feel more, more authentic or more like myself when I write in Spanish. When I write in English, it's sort of like I acquire this other personality, this other way of writing, using different slang, different words, and so on. Yes. That's why it's always hard for me to read when somebody translates one of my texts into English, because I realized I would have said it a different way. We're almost out of time for this interview, but I want to ask you about your readers. What kind of experience do you want your readers to have when they read something from you? I think that the nicest thing for a writer is to, to be able to connect with his or her readers. One of the best presents ever is when I get to go to a book presentation and you happen to read a short story or the beginning of a short story. And then all of a sudden at the end of the presentation, this person comes up to me and she says, you know, that thing that you just mentioned, I have had that experience and you don't know what it means to have this on paper, to have it written down, because that's exactly what I felt, but I couldn't put it down in words. To me, that's the best present that you could ever get, more so than any other, you know, than any literary award. I think, you know, to answer your question now after like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that I'm always trying to write, to connect with people so that people don't feel lonely. If you are an immigrant, you always feel like there's this part of you that doesn't quite fit in. And I would love for my readers to feel like, you know, within the pages of this book, you do belong. You do have a place that you can call home. Yes, they do. Thank you so much, Osvaldo Estrada, for that. You're very generous. Thank you for saying that. That is all the time we have today for Latino Book Review Presents. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this. And I really, really genuinely appreciate the time that you have taken to interview me. Thank you, Osvaldo. We'll talk next time. This podcast is possible thanks to the support of listeners like you. Remember to follow us on your favorite social media platforms, visit latinobookreview.com and sign up to become a patron. Our producers for today's show were Gerald Padilla and Rosy Lima. I am Vale Rendon. Until next time. They belong, but there's so many times when they don't. Latino Book Review.